Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm here with Dr. Anthony Biglan. He's a senior scientist at Oregon Research Institute and the co-director of the Promise Snakebrood Research Consortium. He has been re conducting research on the development and prevention of child and adolescent problem behavior for the past several decades. His work has included studies of the risk and protective factors associated with tobacco, alcohol, and other drug use, also high-risk sexual behavior and antisocial behavior. He and his colleagues at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences published a book summarizing the epidemiology, cost, etiology, prevention, and treatment of youth with multiple problems called Helping Adolescents at Risk, which was published back in 2004. He is a former president of the Society for Prevention Research, he was a member of the Institute of Medicine Committee on Prevention and is also the author of the book The Nurture Effect, How the Science of Human Behavior Can Improve Our Lives and Our World. So, Dr. Biglin, thank you a lot for taking the time to be here with us today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, great. So, the first thing I would like to ask you, Dr. Biglin, since uh, your work is mostly focused on the nurture side of things, let's say. In your book, The Nurture Effect, uh, right at the beginning, you also refer to the importance of also including an evolutionary approach to human behavior development and so on. And you also collaborate with people like, for example, Dr. David Sloan Wilson. So the first question I would like to ask you is, how would you frame the importance of things like evolution and genetics uh, in the context of studying the subjects you're most interested in? Well, I, I've come to think about um, the human sciences in, in an evolution, from an evolutionary perspective. In fact, David Sloan Wilson's book published, I think, just this week uh, mm -hmm. called This View of Life uh, expands on a, 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 an evolutionary framework that really encompasses all aspects of human life. And I noticed that you mentioned in the same sentence genetics and evolution. Mm -hmm. And I think that traditionally, uh, particularly to a biologist, uh, the notion has been that evolution is simply a matter of, of genetics. But in fact, any living process that involves variation and selection uh, is an evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we can understand the development of human behavior in terms of variation and selection. And so if you think about it in terms of uh, behavior analysis or the, you know, the contingencies of reinforcement and so on, that's inherently an evolutionary analysis. What I have done is I've tried to expand that to also understanding the evolution of groups and organizations. And so my new book, which is tentatively titled Evolving and Nurturing Capitalism, uh, essentially uh, deals with uh, how uh, corporate capitalism and free market economics have evolved, especially over the last 50 years, 
and have evolved in directions that are benefiting the corporations, but very often harming uh, a large proportion of the people. So the new book is really taking that evolutionary account of the evolution of capitalism over the last 50 years and describing how we can intentionally evolve a form of capitalism that's founded on the on the on the uh, on the value and the goal of ensuring the well-being of every person, not simply the people who are investors in a corporation. Mm-hmm. Okay, a long so... answer to a short question. <laughs> right. Okay. So when it comes to nurture or to the nurture side of things, I mean there are several different aspects of the environment that you really focus on in your work, like family, school, and even politicians and society at large. So what would you say are some of the most important aspects of the environment that are scientifically proven to have really the biggest impact on children's and adolescent development? Well, I think by far the biggest one is is simply the degree to which uh, children are in find themselves in families and schools and neighborhoods and their relationships with peers to the extent that they are experiencing threat, conflict, coercion. Uh, that is the number one factor that uh, produces all kinds of problems and uh, not just psychological and behavioral problems, but also health problems. Uh, the psychologist Greg Miller has done a, a quite a bit of research on this, and he has shown that uh, children who young children who are exposed to uh, coercive interactions with their parents, and it doesn't have to be uh, abuse and brutality. It can just be you're stupid and uh, you know angry and and uh, those anger and those kinds of things. That starts inflammatory processes. Uh, lead to metabolic syndrome, which is, involves large amounts of body fat, high levels of uh, uh, stress hormones, and so on, which is accounts for uh, significant uh, uh, rates of uh, cardiovascular disease. Children raised in those environments are live shorter lives because of that. So I think that we can understand uh, most aspects of human behavior in terms of the importance of reducing those kinds of stressful uh, interactions. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of what we've learned about how to prevent or to treat psychological and behavioral problems involves helping people to change their environments so that there's greater, uh, uh, so there's less stress, less conflict, less coercion, and more nurturing, more listening to more caring, more positive reinforcement of all kinds uh, to support people's development. That's, I think, a, you know, scientists are used to saying it's really complicated and you have to think about this and you have to think about that. But there's also a sense in which science finds the key strands that are important for uh, understanding a problem or dealing effectively with a problem. And I think the key strands are that we've got to move people from uh, coercive, conflict-filled, stressful kinds of relationships uh, to much more uh, caring, uh, compassionate uh, kinds of relationships. And I think that's true whether you're talking about families or schools or workplaces or neighborhoods or even the relationships among 
uh, groups in or, or, or nations. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are common factors between, for example, family environments and school environments, right? But on the other end, isn't it also the case that there are some specific factors that we have to deal with when it comes to, for example, family environments and school environments, perhaps some aspects where they differ, where they differ from each other? Well, certainly, if you're trying to help families to become more nurturing, uh, the things you do might be rather different from what you do in a school. Uh, I think most of the family interventions uh, start by befriending the parents and helping the parents to feel comfortable that they're being listened to, that they're going to get help, they're not going to be disapproved of, uh, and then giving them, uh, you know, solid, useful advice for how to deal with common problems of children. Uh, and so, you know, that's that's certainly a different strategy than you might use in schools, where uh, you might have a curriculum that's teaching kids how to get along with each other, how to understand their emotions. And there are quite a variety of uh, family interventions and school interventions that have been shown to make a difference. So I don't know how much, I mean, we could get into much more detail about that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, when it comes to peers, and I'm asking you this because I guess that around 20 years ago, uh, people like Judith Reed Cherries published some books, uh, uh, supposedly proving that peers have much more influence over children's and adolescents' development and behavior than, for example, families. So what would you have to say about the importance of the influence of peers on children's development? Well, you know, the, the research, the, the thing you cited, and what was her name? I've forgotten. Judith uh, Reed Cherries, right? Yes. Uh, that was quite controversial when it came out. And what, what she did not mention was that there were a whole bunch of family interventions that have been shown in randomized trials to significantly reduce the problem behaviors that kids, you know, aggressive social behavior, uh, delinquency, uh, and uh, substance use. And if these interventions worked by changing families, that's pretty strong evidence that families do influence kids. That's certainly not to say that uh, that peer influences aren't very important, uh, but in fact, families can have an influence on uh, peer influences uh, through effective monitoring and and uh, uh, you know limited setting um, in terms of. Uh, kids being able to, you know, just run loose with other kids without any adult supervision. Mm -hmm. Yes, but we're talking about prevention science here, right? So when it comes to prevention science, isn't it somewhat of a big problem of it, the fact that it is prevention science here, right? So when it comes to prevention science, isn't it somewhat of a big problem of it, the fact that it is very difficult for us to really isolate and control for environmental factors, just because our environment is really composed 
of a lot of different factors and perhaps when we're studying families and schools and peers and society at large i, I mean there are a, a lot of things that are very that are really difficult to control uh, here right yes it's true uh but we're learning how to control them uh the family interventions are teaching us how we can help families to become uh more nurturing in the sense that i'm talking about it and, you know i mean let me go into a little bit more detail on that i've talked about reducing uh, coercive interactions in families i've talked about rich reinforcement of all kinds of pro-social behaviors and i'm not talking about m ms and candy i'm talking about listening and hugging and uh and and just doing things with the child uh, and following the child's lead and so on. But there's also a matter of setting limits on what kids can do that might get them into trouble and uh, preventing them from having uh, influences that would encourage them to engage in problem behavior, like the marketing of cigarettes or alcohol, which are continue to be significant problems for youth. So yeah, there are all of these kinds of things that we need to do um, But I do think that um, the principles of nurturance are relevant, uh, not only in terms of creating environments that are nurturing, but also how you get to those environments. You're not going to punish your way into more nurturing environments. You can't, you know, you, you get a parent and say, you shouldn't be doing this. You're, you're evil. You're harming your child. Good luck with that. Uh, we need to be nurturing. You know, it's, it's sort of like that old say saying of turtles all the way down you know mm -hmm. if you want parents to be nurturing to their children you have to be nurturing to the parents if you want the people who work with the parents to be uh, nurturing to the parents you need to be nurturing toward them and so you know everywhere you look we need to replace uh, commands and 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 criticism and so on with with caring and support mm -hmm. So at a certain point there, you referred to the consumption of substances like tobacco, alcohol and other drugs by adolescents, but sometimes even children as well. So when it comes to addictive behavior, what are some of the main aspects of the environment that really promote the development of addictive behavior? Well, with respect to alcohol and tobacco, uh, the number one uh, uh, influence has been the marketing of these products. And there has been some curtailment of the ability of the tobacco industry to market to children. I don't know what the situation is in Spain. Uh, I would say that uh, probably Australia has been the most successful in really uh, eliminating Uh, the marketing of cigarettes to young people. Uh, so that's important. With respect to alcohol, it's, it's less clearly established, but the evidence points to the marketing of alcohol as promoting uh, alcohol use. There's also the issues of ha having access to these substances. And so uh, programs that have curtailed uh, the ability of young people to get their hands on these substances also have benefit. And there's some pretty good evidence on that. Um, but, you know, the other things are, uh, you, you come back to the family influences. Uh, if a family, uh, has a kid that they really haven't been able to get to be cooperative and they've had a lot of fights and so on, by the time that kid gets into adolescence, they're liable to 
be running free in the neighborhood because the parents can't control them and making friends with other kids who are similarly unsupervised. That's the formation of a deviant peer group. And that's certainly a factor that influences substance use and delinquency and, uh, you know, but it can't be prevented. Mm -hmm. Yes. And when we're talking about substance use and abuse, I mean, we're talking mostly about, I would say, addictive behaviors, but there are other types of uh, behavioral issues that you're also interested in, like, for example, uh, high-risk sexual behavior, and this is a little bit different, right? Because, I mean, it is not necessarily something that is addictive. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, sexual behavior, I mean, it is something innate to us. I mean, tobacco, alcohol, and things like that, they are technologies that we've developed over time. But sexual behavior, I mean, we have our sexual instincts and things like that. So yes. uh, wh wh what is different in the approach that we should have to that type of behavior? Well, let me back up to the evolutionary account. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons that, um, well, I, I, I circle around to this. Uh, there is good reason to believe that early sexual, risky sexual behavior is part of a constellation of factors that have an evolutionary root. In a dangerous world, you better have your babies earlier. You may not have them at all. Mm -hmm. And so it looks like kids who are raised in threatening environments are significantly more likely to engage in a lot of different kinds of deviant behavior. But one of the functions of that is that it increases the likelihood that they will have sex early, that they will have babies early. And so uh, there's an evolutionary you know, reason why uh, risky sexual behavior happens. And so if you can create an environment where kids are uh, pursuing pro-social uh, trajectory and have, uh, you know, friends who are pursuing those things, uh, risky sexual behavior come, becomes less likely. Now, obviously, you know, parental limit setting, uh, the teaching of, 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 you know, specific skills for getting along with people in the opposite sex and what you should expect from them and so on is also very important. Mm -hmm. And there you're referring to what people like, for example, the evolutionary psychologists and the human behavioral ecologists call the, the ecological conditions and uh, life history theory, for example. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's now move on to talk a little bit about antisocial behavior. First of all, uh, what do you mean by antisocial behavior? Is it mostly about violent behavior or not? Well, I think that the, the, the developmental pathway generally starts with kids who, are, uh, who don't learn good self-regulation as young children who, and who are uncooperative. And this is more likely to happen in families where there's high levels of conflict. Uh, and so... Uh, the and, and in fact, the the uh, uncooperative behavior of a young child um, can actually be functional. Basically, what coercion involves is that uh, I use my aversive behavior to get you to stop being aversive, 
well, that immediately reinforces me for being aversive. And what has been found in studies of families that develop kids with antisocial behavior is that they're significantly more likely to use coercive behavior with each other. And so all of the family members can be quite good at getting somebody to stop being aversive by being aversive themselves. And so what you get is a kid who has a pretty strong repertoire of using aversive behavior to get out of doing things that they're asked to do to get things that they want. They get to school and they engage in that behavior. Uh, they tend to be rejected by uh, many other kids. They tend to be uh, disliked by teachers and they don't learn as well. And so uh, by you know early adolescence, these kids are uh, significantly more likely to develop friendships with other rejected kids. And that's the pathway to antisocial behavior as an adult. And I would, you know, antisocial behavior is, is essentially behavior that that is harmful to other people, though it, in the end, it's harmful to the kid who's engaging in it as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's a very good point to make here, right? That uh, all of the types of behavior that we're talking about here, uh, what you're really interested in is the fact that they might be harmful uh, to the child herself or yes. to the adolescent himself yes. and to the people surrounding him or her, right? Right, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go back then to... Uh, the evolutionary approach, because in your work you also talk about things like cultural evolution and psychological flexibility and things like that. So le let's start with cultural evolution, because you use that to try to promote what you call in your book, for example, a nurturing society or to try to create a nurturing right. society. So when it comes to applying evolutionary principles to culture, what are the aspects that you're most interested in in there? Well, uh, start with variation and selection. Evolution is a matter of variation and selection and selection is a function of consequences. If, um, uh, if a, a group develops a set of practices that produce the things they need to survive and flourish and expand, then that will expand. And if they don't, uh, they won't. Develops a set of practices that produce the things they need to survive and flourish and expand, then that will expand. And if they don't, uh, they won't. And I... Um, I've done a lot of work in the last two years in my new book on the evolution of capitalist practices. So the, the principles of variation and selection are relevant to uh, what groups and organizations do. And those groups and organizations that have gained more resources uh, have expanded. You can use that analysis to understand the marketing of cigarettes by tobacco companies. Uh, I have the first six chapters of my book. Uh, I don't know if I can get them all right, but uh, there's a chapter on tobacco use. Uh, 450,000 Americans eat, die each year smoking related illness. This is harmful, but the practices of the tobacco industry have been selected by the profits that they have made, and it has been without regard to the harm that's done. And that's all six chapters are 
industries that have who have evolved practices that are beneficial to the industry and harmful to the public. So there's the pharmaceutical industry, there's the, the food industry, there's the financial industry, there's the gun industry, and there's the fossil fuel industry. And all of these have evolved practices that uh, were beneficial to them and in many cases beneficial to others. I mean, uh, without the fossil fuel industry over the last 200 years, we wouldn't be talking to each other uh, from this distance. Um, but once you, once you identify that a uh, practice is harmful, uh, then you know, we can ask the question of, do we want that harm? Does that harm outweigh the benefit? And if it does outweigh the benefit, how can we regulate the consequences of the corporations such that they will not engage in practices that are harmful. I don't know if that, that may, I may have sort of moved off of what you had in mind with that, but. Um. Yeah, yes, because I mean, when we refer, yeah, yes, because I mean, when we refer to culture, we're thinking about many different aspects, right? Because there are aspects that involve some of the things that we've already talked about, like uh, family environments and school environments, but also what what we do at a policy level and how yes. politicians participate in that, correct? Yes. Well, of course, I mean, to me, culture is just everything human beings do. Uh, but we need an effective way of thinking about that. And I submit that an effective way of thinking about it is, you know, individuals' behavior is selected by its consequences, but the practices of groups and organization are selected by their consequences. So variation and selection is relevant to all of these things. But, but circle back to what you were just saying, because I thought there was another angle on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, uh, I mean, I was referring to cultural evolution. I don't know if you want to refer to any other aspect of culture or not. Mm, I don't. Well, to me, um, what we need uh, to reform society, basically, is to get clear on what our values are. You have to start with values. Now, behavioral scientists have you know, haven't always been comfortable talking about values. But I think if you looked at the acceptance and commitment therapy research, it shows pretty clearly that people benefit when they get clear about their values and begin to organize their lives around the pursuit of their values, rather than struggling with thoughts and feelings that they wish they could control and they try to control and they can't control. Um, but I think that this is relevant to the evolution of our societies. I think that if you ask most people about the things that they want in their lives and in the lives of their community, they're going to talk about pro-social things. I've done this with uh, groups and from, uh, from Oregon to Sweden, uh, asking them, what are you know, the things you'd like to see? And they basically want to see uh, people being caring and compassionate and productive and so on. But if we want that, how do we arrange, how do we evolve a society that has that? Well, I think one of the things we do is we get, we ask people to start looking at every sector of society and ask, is this sector of society helping to achieve the kinds of things that we most value? Is it, is it caring, is it ensuring the well-being of every person? And where it isn't, how can we change that? And, uh, you know, the second half of my book has 
chapters on uh, higher education, the health health system, uh, K-12 education, uh, business, uh, the criminal justice system. And in every sector of society, what we need are people to say, how much is this sector of society contributing to the well-being of every person? And are there ways in which it's acting that actually harm people? And I submit that in every sector I just mentioned, a group of people who got serious about, well, wait a minute, is this actually benefiting or is it harming? Would be, we would begin to reform every sector of society. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's now talk a little bit about another very important concept that, that has to do with psychological flexibility, because that, I think, is really crucial here. Uh, I mean, do you think that there is individual variability when it comes to the ability of each individual to really be psychologically flexible? Do you, do you think that that varies between individuals or not? And if so, is it really possible to, through some approaches, perhaps clinical or not, to really... Uh, increase the psychological flexibility of a given individual? Well, you know, the whole concept of psychological flexibility grew out of the research on uh, acceptance and commitment therapy. And um, for from that perspective, psychological flexibility is the ability to uh, pursue uh, one's values by either persisting in a behavior that seems likely to, to contribute to those values or by changing your behavior if it's not working. And I always think of that as sort of a, a, a practical personal pragmatism. What are my values and is what I'm doing going to contribute to those values or not? And if it isn't, then I've got to change what I do. And so um, there's certainly considerable variability in people's psychological flexibility. I don't think there's as much research that has been done as is needed on the degree to which coercive environments make people not psychologically flexible. Uh, And so I think that one of the things that uh, would be helpful would be to um, to to look at the degree to which we these family interventions, for example, increase psychological flexibility, uh, increase the ability of people to regulate uh, their responses to distress and in the context of distress, do things that will work for them as opposed to do things that exacerbate the problems that they're having. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, anyway, it is um, the ways by which we approach each individu- individual in terms of their psychological flexibility. I mean, it is easier to work with some individuals than others, right? Because perhaps in some people it is much more difficult and I'm not sure if for innate reasons or perhaps the environments they developed in, it is much more difficult to render them more psychologically flexible, let's say. Right. Well, I, you know... Uh... There are, certainly, there are certainly people you can't help, but there are now something more than 200 randomized trials of acceptance and commitment therapy for uh, 
problems as diverse as cigarette smoking and schizophrenia. And I think that that research shows that to a very great extent, you can help people to become more psychologically flexible. That's not to say it'll work for everyone. And there's a whole lot more research needed uh, in understanding this. But I do think that, uh, and it's not just ACT. I, I see a whole variety of things that are developing over the last 20 or 30 years that are focused on helping people to be more compassionate and caring. Barbara Fredrickson's work at the University of North Carolina, where she's shown that uh, kindness meditation uh, is significantly beneficial to people and to the people around them. So I think there's a there's a growing movement of, you know, I like to call it nurturance, but you can call it something else if you like. But there's a growing movement to to help people get better at caring for each other. And it, uh, it may be as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so just one last question, Dr. Biglund. When you talk about a nurturing society, uh, are you particularly interested in aspects of the environment and how we can create and promote nurturing societies because uh, perhaps you think that by creating these healthy environments, it is much more easy for people to go through healthy developments and to avoid, uh, to avoid behaviors that are negative both to themselves and to the people that surround them instead of having unhealthy environments and perhaps uh, putting more responsibility on the individual, uh, changing themselves and things like that? I think that's well said. Um, and I, so here's, here's what I'm hoping to do. When my book comes out, the second half of that book is essentially a prescription for how we can evolve a society that's much more nurturing. And what I think is needed is a worldwide movement of people who understand and embrace values of caring and compassion and ensuring that everyone, everyone is cared for, is not cared for, values of caring and compassion and ensuring that everyone, everyone is cared for, is not cared for in the sense that they're dependent on us, but that they have the environments in which they can thrive. And what I'm trying to do is organize a movement uh, such that people are looking at every sector of society and whatever sector of society they're concerned with, if they're in criminal justice, they're asking questions like, is what we're doing actually working? In the United States, it's, it's horribly wrong. We have 70% recidivism rate for people who are in prison, 20% recidivism rate in Norway. Why is that? How can we create a criminal justice system that reduces recidivism? How can we create a criminal justice system that prevents problems from happening in the first place? How can we change the criminal justice system so children whose parents are arrested are not harmed? Uh, that's just you know one example. The, the healthcare system. How can we change the healthcare system so that it is investing much more in the prevention of the problems that happen in childhood that lead to cardiovascular uh, disease in later life. Uh, we need the healthcare system to be investing in the well-being of people long before they ever show up at a clinic for treatment. Mm -hmm. I'm just two examples. Mm -hmm. But join the movement. If you go to values valuestoaction.com, values 
there's a website where we're beginning to organize this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so apart from that website and also the nurture effect, which I already referred to in the introduction, Dr. Biglan, could you tell us again the tentative title of your, of your next book and also perhaps give us a couple more examples of places on the internet where people could go to learn more about your work and uh, the, the work okay. of other of your collaborators? Uh, well, you can also go to TonyBiglan.com, T-O-N-Y-B-I-G-L-A-N.com. Um, the new book is tentatively titled Evolving a More Nurturing Capitalism. And it is, I was just putting the finishing touches on the third to last chapter. It's pretty well done. Uh, not sure when it's going to come out, but uh, I will be contacting you uh, when it does. Um I, I think that um, read David Sloan Wilson's books, uh, Evolution for Everyone, uh, and his, his latest one, uh, uh, This View of Life. Uh, there's, if you go to um, his, the website, look up the Evolution Institute and go to their website. They have all kinds of good things. The Association for Contextual Behavioral Science is an organization of people working on psychological flexibility. Pursue that with them. Uh, go to the Association for Behavioral Analysis, uh, which is doing work worldwide on these kinds of things. Uh, the Society for Prevention Research is, uh, uh, and there's a European Society for Prevention Research. Uh, there are great things going on and if you want to change the world, uh, if you're young and you want to change the world, uh, if you're young and you want to change the world, go into the behavioral sciences because the behavioral sciences, you know, most people don't realize that in the last 50 years, we've learned more about human behavior than we learned in the previous 10,000 years. We have a science of human behavior and it's at a point where if we took put to work if we actually implemented the things we've learned in the last 50 years widespread throughout society we could have a society that has lower levels of psychological behavioral and health problems than we've ever seen in history and that's uh you read the nurture effect and uh hopefully uh, evolving more more nurturing capitalism and you'll see that this can be done but i'm not the only one doing it there are thousands of people and it's a growing movement so I really appreciate your interest in what I'm doing and this opportunity to tell people about it. Okay, it was absolutely my pleasure, Dr. Wigland, to have you on the show. And I will be leaving links to all of that and to your work in the description box of this interview. And again, uh, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show and to be here with us today. And perhaps when your new book is out, we could have another conversation. So I would be happy to. And uh, 
Hi everybody, thank you so much for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and I've been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Uh, otherwise, if you don't like Patreon, you can also go to PayPal or subscribe star all of the links are in the description box of the video and also on my channel uh, and apart from that you can also of course leave a like share the interview and hit the subscription button i would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons karen litzke and blanchett perelga larson law guerrero chantel gelinas jim frank francis ford Hans frederick sunda brian rivera lucas stafiniak sergio condriano and my first producer is our thank you for all